local body for Wedstrong, if when you're signing up, if you can do, if, this, if at least this crew can do it by check and not online, let's try to do that if we can. Like, don't make it the difference between coming and not coming. But, you know, these credit card companies, they drill us for 10, 15 bucks a swipe on these things. And so they kind of hammer us. And you may not know this, but these are not money-making events. These are, can we somehow break even events, you know? And so anyway, if, if that is just as easy for you, that would, be, that would be even better for us. So if you could, you could do the check and uh, you can make it to Cali Harbin, I believe, and just let us know in the memo that it's for Wedstrong. So anyway, that said, let's, let, let's pray before we begin this morning. Jesus, we love you and, and we're thankful for the opportunity and the privilege of coming together. We thank you for the freedom to be able to do that. I thank you for this group of like-minded believers who have come out this morning and, and, they, and they love you and they desire to hear from you. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen as I get out of the way and, and so that your word can have free course this morning and be glorified. And I pray, God, that you would just change lives. If there's anybody here who's never called on your name to save them, I pray that today would be the day that that happens. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 All right, so, so last week we began chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't know, we're in a verse-by-verse study right now of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And, and what we saw last week is that, that starting in chapter 2 and through the first 12 verses of chapter 2, what God is actually doing for us is, is He's laying out the model of discipleship. He, and as we begin this morning and, and we continue looking at the way Paul, Silas, and Timothy modeled discipleship for us, what I want to take a quick second to do is just remind us of what discipleship actually is. We, we, we have a discipleship ministry in this church that I encourage you to be a part of if, if you're not. And, and some of what commonly goes on in this ministry is we've got two people that are going to sit down one-on-one and we go through these 18 lessons of biblical material. It's where someone a little bit further down the road spiritually sits down with someone maybe not quite as far down the road spiritually. And you, you begin this spiritual friendship and this, this spiritual journey. And that's how we typically tend to think of discipleship as simply that. But, but it's supposed to be so much more than just that. The, the lessons are there to provide us a, to provide us a spiritual framework or a, a biblical content for us to cover, but it's not supposed to just be a transfer of information. It's supposed to be a transfer of life. And, and, and something else that commonly gets misunderstood when talking about discipleship is that biblically, discipleship actually begins with evangelism. The, the, the intention isn't that the, the pastors just assign you somebody else. Okay, I'm ready to, for somebody else for you to give me, pastor. No, it, that's not the intention. Though that, if somebody's here that's already saved, of course we do that and we'll do that. But, but, but in its purest form, biblically, discipleship includes and begins with evangelism. So I want to make sure that we understand those things. But again, at the heart of discipleship, it's life on life. 
and it begins with evangelism. And that's exactly what Paul, Silas, and Timothy model for us in ministering to and discipling the Thessalonians. And so last week we began studying how Paul, Silas, and Timothy's manner of life when discipling the Thessalonians, how their manner of life actually impacted their ability to be used. We, we went back to 1 Thessalonians 1.5, and we gleaned something pretty monumental last week. And I'd like you to go back there with me again. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. And what was it that contributed to the Holy Ghost unleashing that kind of power in Thessalonica? As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. The way God used them was connected to the manner of men that they were and the way that they conducted themselves amongst these people. And, 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 then, and, and then verse 9 even talks about their manner of life again. And then chapter 2 and verse 1, he calls it their entrance in unto them is the way he describes it. But, but what I want us to continue doing this morning is what I, I want us to continue looking at this manner of life that he's talking about. This manner of life that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had towards the Thessalonians that contributed to this unleashing of this power of the Holy Spirit and ultimately made them the model disciplers for us to follow. And, and similar to what we saw last week in, in verses 3 and 4, Paul lays out for us in the verses that we'll look at this morning. He says, here's what our manner wasn't, and here's what our manner was. Here's what we didn't do, or here's what our motives weren't. And here's what we did do, and here's what our motives were, here's what our perspective was, here's how we behaved, here's who we were in front of you. So, so last week we saw that their manner or their motive, it, it wasn't deceit, it wasn't uncleanness, it wasn't guile, but what was motivating them was this perspective that they had. They viewed themselves as being allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. They saw it as this unbelievable privilege, this mind-boggling privilege to be put in trust with the gospel, something so incredible that God would allow us to have part of that. And not only did they see it as a privilege, they saw themselves as stewards. They, they understood they'd been put in trust with the gospel. It, it had been put into their trust, and so therefore they were stewards and as stewards, they knew that they would ultimately give an account for what they did with what they'd been entrusted with. They had been put in trust with the gospel. They had been put in their trust so they were stewards, and they knew they would ultimately give an account for what they did with the master's goods that he entrusted them with. And we saw that, man, if we don't view discipleship that way, if we don't view ministry through that lens and view it as a privilege and view ourselves as stewards, there's a really good chance there won't be a whole lot of ministry going on in our lives. And, and, and so similar to last week, we're going to continue studying how, how it was that Paul, Silas, and Timothy describe their manner in ministry as they disciple the Thessalonians. And, and like I mentioned a few minutes ago, just like Paul did in verses three and four of chapter two, Paul lays out for us what they didn't do or how they didn't conduct themselves. And then he says, but this is what we did. 
And this is how we conducted ourselves and as they modeled discipleship for us. And so I'd like us to begin with what they didn't do. That's number one on your study sheet, what they didn't do. We'll get to the positive things that they did, but first, let's see the negative things that they didn't do. And, and one of those things is they didn't use, letter A, they didn't use flattering words. They didn't use flattering words. First, First Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 5, it says, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know. Paul says, we didn't use flattering words, and you guys heard us, and you guys can vouch for us that that's not what we did. You know, we, we tend to think of, of flattering. We tend to think of that a little bit different than God does. A way that we might describe the way that we feel when someone pays us a compliment or says something nice about us, we would commonly be like, oh, I was, I was flattered, right? L ladies, when, you know, when your boyfriend or your husband before he was your husband was flirting with you, you know, when he's telling you how pretty that you look, you were flattered, weren't you? Right? That's how, you, that's, how, that's how you felt. And so oftentimes we say that and we don't mean it in a negative way when we say this word. We actually mean it quite the opposite. We mean flattery in a positive way. But in the Bible, there literally isn't a single place where flattery is found in a positive light. <laughs> it's always negative. And so obviously in this case, it's no different. It's a negative. Paul says, we didn't use flattering words when we showed up and we gave you the gospel, and we began discipling you. In other words, they didn't show up to Thessalonica and start trying to smooth talk these guys and tell them what they wanted to hear. They didn't try to make the gospel more palatable in order for it to make what they're telling them just a little bit easier to swallow. Now, they weren't going out of their way to be jerks about it either, but they weren't going to smooth talk them because the truth is, biblically, flattery is connected to deceit. And we looked at deceit last week, but flattery and deceit, man, those are pages out of Satan's playbook. Those aren't pages out of God's playbook. Do you remember the flattery that came out of Satan's mouth to Eve back in the Garden of Eden before sin entered into the world? Do you remember that flattery? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 2 lays it out for us. It says, And the woman, that's Eve, said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And what's interesting is, is that everything that Satan says here, everything the serpent says right there, was actually true. It, just, it wasn't the whole truth, but it was true. It just made it sound a whole lot different than it really was, because he was right. They didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually, and he was right, her eyes were opened, and she could now see the good and the evil, but she could already see the good, couldn't she? So really all she got was the evil. And, and seeing the evil wasn't all it was cracked up to be. 
Satan used flattery. He used pleasant words that were wrapped in deceit. And you know what? The human race is still a sucker for that. Because you remember what Paul says? He's writing to Timothy. And he begins to describe the, the way people will begin to respond to the preaching of the hard truths of God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Would you look at that? It says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, they'll use flattery when they teach. And then what? And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Listen, Paul teaches us that we're to preach the Word, not just talk about the Word, not just use the Word, not just give some people information about the Word. We're to preach the Word, and we're to be instant in season and out of season, this verse says. We're to do it when it's not popular, we're to do it when it's not socially acceptable, and we're to do it when it's not politically correct. The content of the message that we're to proclaim is the Word, and you know what that looks like? It looks a whole lot like what verse 2 described. It looks a whole lot like reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. We might say it like this. It's convicting, it's confronting, and it's challenging. And despite the way we're drawn to flattery, this is not the way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy presented the gospel to the Thessalonians. And listen, the power of the Holy Spirit was at work because of it. And listen, that's what we've got to do. Verse 2 on the screen says we're to, we're to present the truth with all long suffering, and we can never get too far removed from that. But in order to avoid using flattery, like Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we've got to tell people the truth. They have to understand that they're a sinner. That's not flattering. They have to understand that if there's never a point in time in their life when they called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them and they, they'd never acknowledge that they're a sinner in need of a Savior and they never believe that that Savior is none other than Jesus Christ in human flesh and they never believe that Jesus was died and He buried and He rose again and they've never at a point in time called on the name of the Lord to save them putting their trust in Him and His finished work on the cross alone, not adding anything to it, no baptism, no works, no nothing. If they've never done that, here it is. They're on their way to hell if nothing changes. That's not flattering either. But this is the message that needs to be proclaimed with all long-suffering and love. But we don't flatter to hide the truth. Paul describes the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4 like this. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. That sounds a whole lot like flattery. And what's he contrast that with? But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of 
of God. Paul says, I didn't try to entice you, to flatter you with fancy words of man's wisdom, lest I eliminate the power of God. <laughs> you see that? He, he didn't want their faith to stand in the fancy, flattering words of the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. And that power of God was at work in their hearts of the Thessalonians and in, in the manner in which they conducted themselves and the manner in which they presented that truth, it unleashed that power. Another way they conducted themselves as their manner in ministry and what they didn't do as they discipled the Thessalonians was they didn't let her be use a cloak of covetousness. They didn't use a cloak of covetousness Look back with me again at 1 Thessalonians 2.5. For, for neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a, here it is, cloak of covetousness. God is witness. A, a cloak is, is like, a, it's like a coat. In covetousness, it's, it's desiring something that isn't yours or, or, or something that's outside of the bounds of what God has for you. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It doesn't say covetousness is sort of like idolatry. It kind of puts you in mind of idolatry just to fuzz. No, that's not what it says. No, it, it is idolatry. Because you're making an idol out of whatever it is that you desire that's outside of the bounds of what God has for you. You've elevated that thing above God now. When God is giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 17, He lays out a few different things that we can covet. He says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So there's a, there's a variety of things that somebody can covet, but what Paul's saying is, is we didn't show up wanting anything from you. We weren't coveting your stuff, we weren't coveting your money, we, and we weren't coveting your wives and trying to put a cloak over that or put a coat over those intentions so you couldn't see what we were really after. That's not what they did. And, and man, sadly, putting a cloak of covetousness when ministering or discipling is an extremely common thing. There are those that minister and, and those that disciple, and there's something secretly in it for them that they're ultimately after. It's a cloak of covetousness. Romans 16, 18, it, it, it talks about those that... that that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but what do they serve? Their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, flattery, deceive the hearts of the simple. There, there are those that you got to look out for out there, y'all, because they're, because they're using flattery. They're smooth talkers and they deceive because of what's in it for their own belly. They, they serve themselves, not God. And, and yeah, we got to look out for this because it's, because it's, my goodness, it's everywhere. But we also have to make sure it's not us. We have to make sure that the reasons that we do what we do are not cloaked in covetousness. 
where our words and, and our behavior appear to be pleasing unto the Lord, but it's really just a cloak for whatever it is that we're really after. And that could be a position, that could be money, that could be a person. As we minister to others, as we disciple others, we've got to be sure we keep our motives in check. And we have to be aware of others out there who are using the gospel as their cloak to deceive. Listen, Satan is at work in the church. Satan uses people in the church. Satan is hiding in religion, not the bars and not the clubs. We have to understand that or we're going to get all twisted around in the church. As we continue looking at, at Paul, Silas, and Timothy's manner and ministry and, and what they didn't do as they discipled the Thessalonians. Next, I want us to see, let her see, they didn't seek glory from people. Let her see, they didn't seek glory from people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others. Paul, Paul says our motives behind our ministry, our motives as we discipled you, it, it wasn't so that we could get glory from you, and it wasn't so that we could get glory from anybody else. That wasn't why we did what we did. And it really is the craziest thing, because you know what tends to, to creep in once we're reaching people with the gospel? It, we're discipling them. We're seeing people grow. We're seeing the power of God in our own lives. And we're seeing the power of God work through us. You know what creeps in? It, it's a sick thing. But oftentimes what happens is, is we start wanting a little bit of the glory for that. We can be in the middle of a season of life where we're on the mountaintop, man, and God is doing his thing through us, and we're moving, and we're shaking, and we're impacting people, and we're discipling people, and all of a sudden, in the midst of that whole thing that's supposed to be all about God, a little something creeps in, and it's like, but did you see your boy? But did you see me? Did you see how God is using me? I can't get mad at, that you look at me because look at me. <laughs> right? A little, a little something like that creeps in, that desire for us to get the glory that's only been reserved for God. It, it creeps in. Another way it creeps in is the way it's described in Galatians 5.26. Let us not be desirous of vain glory provoking one another. And what's it look like? Envying one another. Another way this thing shakes out when we're wanting the glory for ourselves is, is we end up jealous of each other. Hey, why'd he get to do that? Hey, why, why'd he get to lead that? Hey, why'd she pay that compliment to her? She never says that stuff like that to me. That's vain glory. And Paul says, we didn't come to you guys wanting any of that. And, and that leads us to the, to the next manner in which Paul, Silas, and Timothy conducted themselves in ministry and discipleship. And, and that is, they, they didn't let her D seek to be a burden. They didn't seek to be a burden 1 Thessalonians 2, 6, 
nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Like we just saw Paul saying, we weren't seeking glory from you guys or anybody else because we didn't want to be a burden to you. And as apostles of Christ, he's essentially saying, as apostles of Christ, we did have some leverage that not just anybody had. As apostles, they could have used greater authority and they, they could have expected greater esteem. As apostles, man, these were some of the first messengers of Christ after the resurrection. According to Ephesians 2.20, apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Man, these guys held quite the position, but these guys don't care about that. They didn't want the glory that could come with that. They didn't want to be a burden to the Thessalonians. But, but this thing of having some sort of title or this, some sort of position, man, it, it, gets, it gets people messed up. You remember how it messed up Lucifer? You remember how messed up he got on that thing? Look at Ezekiel 28, 13 with me where Lucifer or, or Satan is described. It says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. And listen to this unbelievable description. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Are you, can you even come close to picturing what was just described there? Satan previously was made up of all of these precious stones and musical instruments. It's, it's hard to imagine just how incredible that must have been. It would appear that he was essentially the worship leader for all the sons of God before he fell. And then, verse, and then four verses later in verse 17 of chapter 28, here's... here's Here's what Ezekiel says, Thy heart, it was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. He was feeling himself, wasn't he? Man, look at me. And then, of course, Isaiah 14 and in thir verses 13 and 14, he, Lucifer, he infamously says in his heart the five I wills that many of you are familiar with. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He essentially says, you know all that glory that God gets? I want some of that too. And isn't it crazy how when we're being used of the Lord to minister and to disciple, how we can have the same response that Satan did? We're telling people about the glory of the Lord, but all of a sudden we want some of that glory too. Hey, look at me, I'm somebody. Listen, when you're being used of the Lord and you're accomplishing the mission, and you're leading, and you're teaching, and you're discipling, this is what we have to be on high alert of. We can't be after vain glory. We can't do the exact same thing that Satan did and desire to have that glory too. Satan said, 
Look at my beauty. Ain't I purty? That's what, it, that, that, that's, what, that's what he says. I'm something special. I want the glory too. And, and, and Paul could have done that too and said, look at me. I'm an apostle. I'm something special. I want the glory too. But that's not what Paul did. He understood that glory is for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So Paul's example to us is that they, they didn't seek glory from anyone despite having the position or the authority and despite the way that God was using them. So, so that's what they didn't do. And, and they discipled the Thessalonians. They, they didn't use flattering words. They didn't use a cloak of covetousness. They didn't seek glory and they didn't seek to be a burden. But, but what did they do? And that's number two on your outline, what they did. What they did in, in chapters 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, here's what we didn't do and here's what we did or here's how or why we did what we did. And he follows this similar pattern in, in the verses we're studying this morning. In verses 5 through 7, again, he lays out what they didn't do and then he tells us what they did. And what I want you to see that they did do was is that they behaved as a nursing mother. They behaved as a nursing mother. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 is, is, is exactly what that says. It says, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Now, don't you just love it, fellows, when, the, when God ascribes feminine qualities to us? Don't you just... Don't you just love don't you just love that? What, what God is inspiring Paul, Silas, and, and Timothy to do is describe the manner in which they conducted themselves as they ministered to and discipled the Thessalonians as being like a nursing mother. Listen, the Bible's way more woke than anybody thought it was, clearly. I'm kidding. The, the he describes it. As a nursing mother, I mean, tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor with this thing. And listen, y'all, this isn't the only time he does give us these feminine qualities. How about the fact that we're the bride of Christ? Have you ever thought about that feminine quality that he gets you? And, and, and to me, when God does that and he calls us things like the bride of Christ, it always kind of makes me feel like this next slide. You know, you know, you know what I mean? Does that ever make you feel like that? <laughs> right, uh, you know, he kind of, he, he likes to do that to us. I think he's got a sense of humor and he might be messing with us a little bit. But, but in this case, as they're, as they're modeling discipleship for us, they describe the way that we're to do that like a nursing mother. Now, keep in mind, Paul, Silas, and Timothy led these people to the Lord, so they are their spiritual children. They helped lead them to their second birth when they were born again, and so they're described as being like a nursing mother. And so I want to look at that a, li a little closer, and first I want us to see that a nursing mother is gentle. Letter A, they were gentle with them. They were gentle with them. The verse we're, we're studying, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, it, it says exactly that. It says, we were gentle among you. 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, it says that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle <clears throat> unto all men. Listen, I know that being gentle sounds a little bit like a weak thing to do, right? It, it sounds a little bit like the, the sissy thing to do, but doesn't striving come a whole lot more natural to us? Striving is disputing or, or fighting or arguing. It, it's actually a whole lot easier to strive than it is to be gentle. So which of those is actually showing more strength and which one is actually showing more weakness? Anybody can strive, anybody can argue, and anybody can get frustrated when people are doing dumb stuff. But it takes true strength to be gentle in the midst of that. And that's the example Jesus set for us as well. Jesus was in no way weak. But have you ever seen how he's described in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11? It says, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them. Where's he going to carry them? In, in his bosom. That reminds you of anything? And shall gently lead those that are with young. That's the example that Jesus sets for us. He carries us in his bosom and he gently leads. And in the midst of this lovey-dovey description of Jesus, you have to love how he's described in the previous verse of Isaiah chapter 40. I love this. Isaiah 40 in verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Would you look at this? Would you, would you listen to this? That same arm described in verse 10 as an arm with strength that's going to rule is the same arm in verse 11 that he gathers us up with. And carries us right next to his chest and gently leads us. Listen, Jesus being gentle with his people didn't make him softer or weaker. It was actually showing off his strength. That's how Jesus is with us. That's how Paul, Silas, and Timothy was with the Thessalonians. And that's how we're to be with those that we're discipling. Another way that 1 Thessalonians 2.7 describes a nursing mother is, is it says that they, they cherished them. Letter B, they, they cherished them. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 again says, they were, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Just like a nursing mother, they, they cherished their spiritual children or those they were discipling. Cherish means to, to hold close, warmth. That, that's how Paul, Silas, and Timothy felt about these Thessalonians. And if you have kids, I bet you've felt something like this feeling before, right? You just want to squeeze them so stinking tight and grit your teeth and, you know, do all that stuff. Man, it's, you, you can't take it. They cherished them. Ephesians 5.29 says something I find interesting. It says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourisheth, he nourisheth, and here it is, cherisheth it. 
Paul uses those exact same words to the exact same word to describe how we care about our own selves. He uses the same word to describe how we're to care for others as he uses to describe how we care for our own self, to cherish, and specifically those we're ministering to, and specifically those we're discipling, which makes a whole lot of biblical sense because of what Jesus answered when the Pharisees asked him what the greatest commandment in the law was. Do you remember this story? Matthew 22, starting in verse 36. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Here it is. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thy own sorry self. As thy self. And what God wants to teach us is just cherish others and just cherish the ones you're ministering to like you cherish your own self. We understand it when we describe it that way, don't we? Because we understand how we cherish and we nourish ourselves. If we're hungry, we go eat. If we're hot up in here, Jerry, grab the thermostat, please. <laughs> Would you? If we're... <laughs> If we're tired, we sleep. If we have an itch, we scratch it. That God's saying to us in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, to cherish others like we cherish ourselves. Now, now being gentle and, and cherishing those that we're discipling, is the, those are the specific ways that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7 describes a nursing mother. Both of those words are are actually in the verse. But, but, but what are some other things that we can glean from this illustration that God uses here of a, of a nursing mother? Because Romans 1.20 teaches us that, that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Okay, so God uses creation... And he uses it to teach us things about him. That's why he created things the way that, that he did. He didn't do that haphazardly. He's teaching us even through the way he created things. He wanted to use it to teach us about him. And so with that said, what are some of the other things that we can glean from the illustration of being a nursing mother that aren't explicitly mentioned in verse 7? Here's an obvious one, letter C. They fed them. They fed them. It's hard to mention a nursing mother without mentioning feeding. And you, you know what's interesting about the way that God made babies? It made them so that they desperately need to be fed so much so that if you put one into the kitchen and you plopped them down by themselves surrounded by food and you didn't feed them, they'd still starve to death. And just like in the life of a physical baby, it's similar in the life of a spiritual baby. A spiritual baby needs a lot more help feeding themselves than a spiritual young man or a spiritual father does. And that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy did for the Thessalonians. And it's what we're to do with our spiritual children. It's what we're to do with those that we disciple. We've got to understand their spiritual state. And we have to be gentle with them, cherish them, and we've got to help feed them. We don't, we don't just start cramming steak down the hatch 
No, no like a, a nursing mother, we, we feed them the milk of the word. We do what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 describes. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. That's what's going to help our disciples grow the milk of the word. And God wants us to help administer that to them. Now, there's something that, that about nursing that's not extremely well known that I'd like to explain to you. And since I've never nursed before, and, and so you ladies know a lot more about this than I do, I, I think it merits that I mansplain this to you. So let me mansplain how nursing is, ladies. Here, here's what, here's what, yeah, I know, right? I'm feeling the heat. No. <laughs> So here's what doctors are discovering out there, okay? This is something that they're onto, that baby saliva triggers an increased immune response in breast milk. Baby saliva triggers an increased immune response in breast milk. So for example, if a baby is sick, the baby's saliva when nursing is essentially putting in an order for what that baby needs to get better. You tracking with that? It triggers an immune response in the mother's milk, so it's actually food and it's actually medicine. Pretty fascinating, pretty amazing how God designed this whole thing. Now consider that and think about what we studied a few weeks ago. If you recall, we saw that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they showed up to Thessalonica right after Paul and Silas had been thrown in the slammer and been beaten and imprisoned for sharing the gospel in, in, in Philippi. And you remember what happened once they brought the gospel to the Thessalonians after having that persecution? The Thessalonians immediately come under persecution from the lewd fellows. So check this out. Paul and Silas may not have realized it at the time, but when they're being persecuted in Philippi, it's as if God was putting in an order for the Thessalonians because the Thessalonians were about to suffer persecution as well. But now God had given Paul and Silas what they needed to administer the milk to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians knew how to handle the persecution because they followed Paul's example according to 1 Thessalonians 1.6. It says, ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Okay, so the Thessalonians, they followed what they learned from Paul, who had just gone through it. And you know what that was? It was food and it was medicine. It was food to nourish them and it was medicine to heal them. And I, and I think what God wants to, to teach us is in the, in the midst of discipling someone, there's, there's such a special relationship that he wants you to have that when it's done right, he's actually giving the discipler the specific milk that the one they're discipling is going to need. He describes this relationship as a nursing mother and he's stretching you 
and he's growing you in some of the same areas that you're ministering to and discipling are going and your discipler is going to end up needing help with so a nursing mother they they feed their children like we're to feed our disciples Something else that, that we glean from God's illustration of a nursing mother is a, a nursing mother sacrifices for their baby. Letter D, they, they sacrificed for them. Can any past or, or present nursing mothers in, in this room confirm that there's a lot of sacrifice that goes on when feeding, when nursing? Have any of you ever wished that just one time your husband would be able to experience the joy of it so that they could completely relate with you on that whole deal? You could just understand what it's like for one minute, what I got to go through. <laughs> Nursing a baby, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of energy and it's no different spiritually. Feeding, a, feeding baby Christians the sincere milk of the word, it takes sacrifice it takes hard work. It takes energy. Nursing a baby zaps your energy, doesn't it, ladies? But you know what happens after you've nursed? You're about as hungry as you can possibly be, aren't you? You're, you know why? Because your body is telling you you need more fuel for that baby because they're going to need to eat again. And that's the way it should work spiritually as well. When you're feeding your disciple and they're eating and growing, you're hungrier than ever to get back into the Word and get some more food because you need it because you're going to need to nurse again later. But you know what else? But, but, but you know what else happens sometimes? That, that it, it's, a, it's a sacrifice. You, you take... What else happens sometimes is, is that you, you take all the time to nurse them and they make a stinky in their diaper and, and it shoots up their back. You know what I mean? Yeah, we've all, we've all been there. Usually it's when you're trying to get to church. And you're like, seriously? But that, that's what happens to physical and spiritual babies. They mess up and they need help getting cleaned up. That's just the way it works, and it takes sacrifice to be the, the one that's going to be there in order to help them with that mess. But, but this, is how, this is how Paul, Silas, and Timothy demonstrate discipleship for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we, we learn from them that we don't approach discipleship using flattering words. We speak the, the truth in love, but we don't water down the truth. We we don't approach ministry or discipleship with a cloak of covetousness. We're not leveraging it for some sort of secret agenda or some sort of ulterior motive. We, we, don't, we don't involve ourselves in ministry or discipleship for our own glory. And, and that's what can, can oftentimes tend to happen in the name of making it all about God. We become obsessed with this desire to make it all about us, just like Satan did. But we approach this thing of discipleship. We approach it as a nursing mother. We're gentle. We cherish those that we're investing in. We, we feed them. We, we sacrifice for them. So, so let me ask you, who are you personally involved with as a nursing mother? 
I didn't ask you where all it is that you serve in the church, though that's great. Those are all those are all great things. That's wonderful. Who are you personally involved with and investing in like a nursing mother in your life? Maybe some of you feel like you need someone to be a nursing mother to you. And if that's the case, let's let's talk about that. But but in these last days, it's so important that we're ministering to, investing in, and discipling others so that they can mature and they can do the same. So who is it that you're investing in like that? And if it's nobody, why not? God, we, 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 we come before you and we, we so appreciate the example that's laid out for us. We appreciate your illustrations. We're thankful for the way... You created us, the way you created the world, the way you created the human body to teach us things about you that maybe we, we couldn't see as visibly without that. I, I pray, God, that you would guide us and that you would lead us and that you would help us to be a part of the ministry of discipleship where you're just constantly finding a place, a person to be investing in, to be loving on, to be cherishing, to be able to invest your truth in. And, and God, I pray that you would just continue to grow us in that way. I pray you would continue to grow us so that we can help grow others and so that we can reproduce and so that we can have multiplication, God. Let us apply these things from your word, Lord. I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, today could be the day. And I pray that that's the day, God, that they would come to a realization and then recognize their need for a Savior, recognize who you were and what you did, and that, you're, and that all they have to do is call upon your name to save them, God. I pray today would be the day. And we love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.